Welcome back to the Snack Walls Podcast. I'm Mike Roberts, your host, and we're here to talk about increasing and maintaining diversity in tech beyond the perks. While companies think they can lure people in with unlimited PTO and dogs in the office, we're here to talk about how you keep them. All right, I'm going to toss it over to our special guest today. Can you tell us in a few sentences who you are and what is it that you do? I'm Anthony White. I'm a writer. I'm a business and operations strategist with a diversity, inclusion, belonging, all of that good stuff, um, focus, and an artist, actually, myself. Nice. What kind of artist are you? I am a musician. I'm a musician, but I, I, I really do. I, one of my sort of my concentrations in language, right? So poetry, writing, songwriting, I really have a passion for, for language. Nice. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, I'm hearing from some leaders in tech that finding diverse talent is a challenge. What are your thoughts? So not to be controversial, but I personally think that it's a it's a ruse. Like every time I hear that, I hear code for complicity with or complicity in systematic oppression or systematic exclusion. And I hear, you know, a, a lack of appetite for going against the status quo, right? So um, when I think, when I hear that initially, I would think, well, this is a supply problem, right? So if it's a supply problem, kind of to like, you know, bring back Econ 101, I would expect people to, I would expect one or two things to happen if it's a supply problem. One would be that the price would the price of the talent would go up. Now I don't see that happening, and what I mean by that is I don't see companies paying a premium for diverse talent, right? So if there is actually a shortage and you actually wanted to get diverse talent, then you would allocate more funds to to the compensation. I'm not seeing that. So then it's like okay, the other solution would be to focus on actually like solving, you know, creating more talent or finding more talent or whatever. Which, in my from my point of view, would mean really interrogating the pipeline if it's a pipeline issue. We're trying to figure out the nature of like sort of of the talent shortage if there's a shortage. I'm putting shortage in quotes for folks that are enjoying um, this uh, from audio only, and that would mean really figuring out. What about the inveterate sort of previously defined pipelines is is yielding this homogenous result? So I mean, you know, if we're at us, if we're at if we're recruiting like mainly from predominantly white institutions, for example, what about this institution is only giving me predominantly white talent, right? Which is kind of obvious. I've kind of you know included that or made it obvious in my framing. But if I'm looking at top 20 schools, for example, classism, sexism, racism, ableism, all the isms that make that group predominantly of one background would also seep into my recruiting from that background, from from that, uh, from that arena. So if I'm trying to diversify my workforce, I would need to be innovative about either counteracting those bi- the biases that exist using the sort of inveterate frameworks or pipelines that I'm choosing to use, or be innovative about the pipelines themselves, maybe investing and creating some of my own. And I'm not really seeing much of that either. So that was deep. <laughs> 
I mean, that's how I see it. That's how I see it. And, you know, I, I feel like no, you know, I, when, I, when I talk to leaders, I try to push leaders on, you know, saying what they mean. Because I think when you say what you mean, you get to the scope. Like, you know, you you choose the right scope of your to solve the problem of your project. Sure. Which would be, you know, the scope creep is a real thing. But also... Um, you also don't gaslight people, right? You don't start saying, oh, there's a lack of, you know, there's no, there are no black developers when the problem is not that. The problem is what you're looking for, right? And how you're looking. I love the two lenses that you, you view it through. The like supply and demand economic lens, which is just like, all right, I'm gonna call BS, right? right. And you laid it out in a, a succinct way that I've never heard someone articulate, which is, very impressive. Um, and then the second side of, at the end of the day, what it boils down to is if they really want to solve this problem, they can solve it. Right? Right. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of talk. <laughs> That's it. That's what it. What needs to happen. So we're going to keep it moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about the push to require, uh, to remove the requirement for CS degrees in many of these software engineering roles? I love it. I love it. And it kind of speaks to what we were getting into earlier, just like what, you know, the re-evaluating the role of formal sort of traditional education and what we are looking for when we say we're looking for a CS degree. Like if you're saying you want somebody with strong CS fundamentals, I think that's fine. You know, that, that's something that's okay and that it's, it's reasonable for the role. You should be willing to invest in that, but that's another, another conversation. But aside from the considerations on fundamentals, there's also the sort of unsaid, unspoken thing that having a four-year degree comes, like, you know, brings, like the, the sort of participation in academia, the the class issue. It's a class issue, right? I mean, four, four-year degree signals things beyond um, just what you start. I mean, I was a philosophy major, which does like steep into my person. I mean, you kind of can tell that, but, but, you know, I studied finance, which I was, uh, sorry, I was an investment banker for seven years. So that kind of used to my analysis as well, but I didn't, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, didn't translate to my career directly. Most people know that. Um, I think that it applies across, I think CS is a little different because like I said, there's a fundamental, you need fundamentals, but uh, I'm also suspicious of that. Yeah. And I, and I think, to your first point, it's clear that there are other ways that you can gain this knowledge. There's a fire hose of information on the internet at this point. So um, you can upskill in those areas if those are truly what they're screening for. I mean, my personal belief is that some folks, not all, are lazy. Right. And so it's an easier barrier for them to put up so that they don't have to screen as many candidates and they don't have to do as much work. And so it's an easy way for them to reduce the number of folks that they actually have to make contact with and talk with and develop relationships, all that kind of stuff. So I get it from the perspective of like trying to be efficient. It's a way for them to be more efficient in their time. But I don't think it results in what they want, which is a more diverse workplace. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so do you think an apprenticeship pattern would work for tech roles? I do. I do. I think that, I think this goes kind of back to defining scope. I think that, you know, apprenticeship, I've I read this white paper and I 
may be able to find it after we're done and maybe it's worth putting in the show notes. But I read a, a, a white a white paper about it and I it convinced me that it was the that it was the right sort of methodology. It convinced me because it showed real benefits of reducing inequality among the pop among the population that this would apply to. And I liked that. My fear about it is that if you're if you do it if you don't do it well you are just moving inequality or you're just shifting it, right? So if I'm the kind, and you know, this is broad strokes, but if I'm the person, if for some reason I can't afford a boot camp because my parents aren't helping me pay for a boot camp or whatever. Sure. Right. Whatever. Right, they are expensive, right? But like, so whatever issues that are stopping me from paying for the, from getting into the boot camp, if the apprenticeship puts me in the door, but then they don't, they because they've invested in me via an apprenticeship, they don't pay me as much, which I think from from the company perspective makes a lot of sense, right? So they've started me at a lower at a lower uh, salary. You've shifted that inequality there. So let's say there's a market event, COVID, unfavorable regulations, or whatever that makes us be more uh, restrictive, but makes us need to lay people off essentially. Does the is the culture going to respect my apprenticeship well enough to allow me to go to another company and have this and have an equal income or salary opportunity as someone who went to a four year school? And the, the answer is my intuition is saying no. And as we see when the market and in any industry is you know experiencing challenges, we end up the people that went to the elite schools or the people with the elite beginning are able to lean on that privilege in order to stay afloat, while people that did don't have that are often sent back to classes that you know are beneath the elite uh the elite rung. So I just I'm suspicious of it. I want us as a culture to value it correctly. If we're gonna to commit to apprenticeship, then we need to say that we need to care and really say that it's equal to it's commensurate right. to the other the other ways of getting to you know a job opportunity and i think that is you're at this point you are skating towards where the puck is going to be yeah and i'm just still trying to convince a yeah, lot of folks yeah, right. i really believe in the apprenticeship pattern itself but i believe in it in the way that it's implemented like in europe yes it yes. is a first class way for you to get into a career and you sort of at that you know high school level make a decision are you going to go down this path which to your point they do respect everyone in the industry respects that that apprenticeship is a path that is just as worthy as a going to university path right so the fear that i have is a little bit different and so i'll share my fear about the apprenticeship pattern i see a lot of companies doing it wrong mm. and what i mean by that is they set the bar to get into their apprenticeship program at you must have graduated from a boot camp or you must have, yeah. you know, and it's just like, but that's the point of the apprenticeship right. is to give people an opportunity that otherwise wouldn't have it. Right. And so when I see really large, you know, companies doing it wrong, my fear is that more of them will do it the wrong way instead of them seeing and paying attention and applying the pattern in a way where it creates equity and it creates an environment for there to have more diverse talent pipelines and really if you're going to do it just do it right right instead of this yeah. like dog and pony show where they're like we're doing an apprenticeship and then you look and you're like 
and you only accepted eight people and they all graduated from an elite coding boot camp. Like, what are you doing over there? And so I think you're a hundred percent right. I think that's probably that's a near as more approximate fear than mine. I, I, but you know, to your point, it, it it requires people to. I think the the hardest part about this kind of change. I know we have more questions, but um, is that it requires you to essentially like devalue your own privilege, right? Because if, if you're an alum of a boot camp or an alum of an institution, you have to say, I'm going to commit to this new way of thinking that yes. makes my experience less valuable, which a lot of people, or makes my like commitment to like that, that kind of thing less valuable. People aren't really trying to do that. Yeah, they're not. They're like, I had to go through that, so you have to go through it. So, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, yeah, that that is an interesting an interesting set of challenges that we may face, mm-hmm. but you know, if people are doing things for the right reason, we'll be able to mitigate that. So what advice would you share with companies that are looking to retain diverse staff? So let's say they've done a great job in attracting them. How do you keep folks working for you? I, you know, I wrote a paper, I wrote like a piece on it that I published on Medium that I, I, I think I, I like what I've said, <laughs> but I feel like I'm, I'm every time I think about it, I have a new thing. Um, but what I've said there, I'll probably go with here. I think um, making sort of debunking the the inherent the homogenous nature of professionalism, right? So, and what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of professionalism is often steeped in you know white standards or you know male patriarchal uh heterosexes like vaguely christian things you know and and we want to we want to have we want professionalism to mean that no matter your background you belong right we want professionalism to mean that we don't want it should be that it is unprofessional to have a homogenous workplace you know the the it's the standard because i think a lot of times we use like moral a sense of morality, particularly this year, right? When we've had all this in the, in the all this like public violence, it there's a sense that it is wrong to uh, to be excluded to, to exclude people, which is true. But I think beyond that, there should just be like the professional, or not beyond that, but before that, there should be the professional sense that it's just not. If I have a, a homogenous workplace and we and the culture homogenizes, then I am not creating a professional space. Um, and then I, I like to say like bi- bi-directionality of culture. And what I mean by that is I think the culture should act on the people as much as the people act on the culture. So if there's, I think, I mean, most of us have been in this environment where management comes out with an acronym that's like really cute, that has their values. And then our performance review has the acronym in it. And then the, all the marketing has the acronym in it. And it does, and what the way these values appear don't reflect my understanding, my personal understanding of these values. I'm supposed to conform. And that expectation of conformity, I think, is what challenges everybody, but particularly, I think, diverse diverse you know, people of diverse backgrounds, I think it's it's an, an additional challenge because depending on, even like take something like, I don't know, like ability, like neurodivergence or something like that. If you have some, if you're under, if the way you deal with things cognitively doesn't match 
the the way a value is articulated to you. A lot of people, like I, you know, I have um, ADHD, and I've had to contend with that as a child. And you know, just the way I understand being productive is a bit different, right? And and if and if I don't, if I'm forced to be productive in one way, then I internalize that 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 sort of that dissonance. And then it gives me an additional work. You know, I can't just show up. I have to now contend with the the dissonance between what I understand to be productive and what they understand. And I have to, and, and that additional work makes me less productive on any, like on any metric. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and it's one of those folks that, folks that have to code switch carry this extra burden with them all throughout the day. So there are these, these pieces that, to your point, uh, I call it like the anti-toxic environment. Right. Folks think that they're creating a safe environment. They think that they create, but they may in fact be creating one that is not inclusive. And that does make it very difficult to retain employees that are like, I don't have to deal with this, right? I'm a black software engineer. I can pick my black up and I can go somewhere else tomorrow. Right. (laughs) And have a job and not be worried about this. So like, I think it's super important to think about that from from that perspective. Um, so, who is somebody like yourself that you would like to acknowledge as a leader, and you think would be a good guest on a podcast like this? So, I was thinking about that. I don't, I don't know him personally. I've interacted with him, but I'm not. We're not friends. But I, I do like when when he talks about these issues. I do like it. So, there's this. A uh, he's the global head of diversity and inclusion at Spotify. His name is Travis Robinson. He was at he was at Snap before, but then he then before that he was at Spotify. I think he really likes Spotify. They probably treat him well over there. But um, I like when he with the way he talks about these issues. I like you know his track record. I would I would definitely recommend or just uplift him. Yeah, absolutely. So we're gonna see. We'll put him on the radar. We'll see if we can get him on the show. No guarantees, but you know we'll try. Yeah. Um, all right. So where can we find out more information about your company? So I just point to LinkedIn. I do have my my sort of, uh, I guess my artist stuff is online, uh, theblacksublime.com. But for more of my sort of business or DNI work, I would use LinkedIn. I'm writing on Medium, so I'm a bit Medium as well. But I have LinkedIn, Medium, and my own website's fine. All right, so we're gonna throw all those in the show notes. And I'm excited to go and read some of this material because it sounds like it's like very engaging. So um, last and final, most important question. And that is, what have you been snacking on lately? What's your favorite snack? My favorite snack is uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Honestly, I've not, I have not outgrown the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't think I ever will. I will say that I have stepped my, I've stepped my game up, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of my jelly. So like, I'd love to use like a strawberry jam or strawberry preserve, but it's essentially a peanut butter and jelly. I like that. It's It's also a meal, so if you miss one, it's a, he- a healthy snack. Exactly. Snack. <laughs> so, I like it. All right, well, again, I appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you so much, Anthony. Oh, thank you. 
The San Diego Code School is a proud sponsor of the Snackwalls podcast. The San Diego Code School is leading companies to tech equity. The tech-enabled apprenticeship program is a venture whose heart is to do a lot of social good and do good work. You can help San Diego Code School secure funding for change by hiring developers, bringing a team in to relieve your backlog, or becoming a program sponsor. You can visit us on the web for more information at http colon forward slash forward slash sdcs.io. 